The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Room to Breathe, Leveraging Biologic Agents and Multidisciplinary Care to Optimize Management in Chronic Rhinosinusitis with Nasal Polyps. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash ZFR860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. My name is Dr. Jivian Lee. I'm a rhinologist and endoscopic skull base surgeon at the University of California, Los Angeles, David Geffen School of Medicine, Department of Head and Neck Surgery. Wanted to welcome everyone to this educational activity on chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyposis and the role of biologic treatments. If you haven't already watched the introductory video, please go ahead and do so now. So what is chronic rhinosinusitis? It's a chronic inflammatory condition that has multiple phenotypes. If we look at the diagnostic criteria, it really requires both subjective and objective findings. So with regards to the subjective criteria, patients that usually have to present with at least a 12-week duration of two of the four following symptoms. So that includes drainage that can be anterior in the form of rhinorrhea or posterior in the form of postnasal drip or both. And this can often be mucopurulent. Next, they can also complain of nasal congestion or obstruction facial pain, pressure, or fullness, and reduced sense of smell. So that encompasses the subjective criteria for CRS, but also has to be in conjunction with objective findings. So that can either be on nasal endoscopy, or you can appreciate some drainage, mucosal edema, or polyps, or on sinus CT imaging, where we can see inflammation of the paranasal sinuses. So for chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyposis, that has a specific constellation of symptoms that often differentiates it from CRS without nasal polyps. So usually our nasal polyp patients present classically with loss of sense of smell and nasal obstruction, not so much with purulent rhinorrhea or facial pressure until they have a secondary infection. There's recent evidence that patients with eosinophilic nasal polyps also report association with ear pain, sneezing, severe difficulty breathing through their nose, nasal congestion, as well as loss of smell and taste. And oftentimes, our nasal polyp patients have comorbidities, including asthma and allergic rhinitis. So in addition to the subjective symptomatology, again, there has to be concurrent objective evidence of sinonasal inflammation. So in terms of sinus CT imaging, we can see complete opacification of the sinuses on both sides. On nasal endoscopy, we can either see some nasal polyps or mucopurulent debris like you can see in this middle photo. And on the right endoscopic image, you can see that there's mucopurulence as well as edema of the middle meatus with some polypoid tissue. So if you look at the CRS classification, again, there's multiple ways to categorize chronic rhinosinusitis, but in the most global sense, many times we assign it to with or without nasal polyps, depending upon the endoscopic findings. So about 20% of our CRS patients have nasal polyps. Usually, at least in Western countries, it's characterized by high tissue eosinophilia and a type 2 predominant inflammatory response. It's a little bit different than other ethnicities, like in Asia, for example, where it's primarily a type 1 response. And then about 80% of our CRS patients have no nasal polyps. So that's characterized by less eosinophilic infiltration and a Th1 predominant inflammatory response. 
Now, those patients that have any type of reaction to NSAIDs or aspirin should be evaluated for a possible AERD or aspirin-exasperated respiratory disease. Now, many of our patients with CRS with nasal polyps report significant impairment in their quality of life, both in their physical as well as their psychological and mental status domains. So nasal symptoms, again, as we reviewed earlier, as part of the subjective criteria, Oftentimes, our patients can have associated ear symptoms as well because of obstruction of eustachian tube from the inflammation, as well as the nasal polyps. And then on the psychological domains, nasal polyps has been associated with anxiety and depression, as well as difficulty with sleep. Those patients that have concurrent asthma tend to have a worse quality of life, both in the physical and mental components. Then if you look at the right graph, you can see that those with asthma and NSAID sensitivity or aspirin sensitivity, which are the purple bars, have significantly worse quality of life than those patients who just have nasal polyps without comorbidities or are population norms. Uncontrolled CRS with nasal polyps has been defined as persistent or recurring nasal polyp disease despite long-term intranasal corticosteroids and having received at least one course of systemic steroids in the preceding two years or prior sinonasal surgery. So essentially those patients that have refractory symptoms despite quote-unquote appropriate medical therapy. Long-term low-dose systemic steroids really aren't recommended for our nasal polyp patients, mainly because of the risk of long-term side effects. And usually one course of systemic steroids refers to a minimum of five days at a dose of 0.5 to 1 milligram per kilogram per day. And then prior sinonasal surgery refers to any surgical procedure that involves resection of polyps. Now, to define severe nasal polyps, this has been outlined in the literature as patients who have bilateral nasal polyps with a nasal polyp score greater than equal to four and persistent symptoms despite long-term intranasal steroids with the need for additional therapy. So the bilateral polyps and the nasal polyp scores are assessed by nasal endoscopy and the presence of persistent symptoms are assessed by various validated outcome instruments. So a loss of smell greater than or equal to two, nasal congestion score greater than or equal to two, SNOT 22 scores greater than or equal to 35, and then total symptom VAS scores greater than or equal to five out of 10. So CRS with nasal polyps is a chronic disease. It's often refractory to medical and surgical therapy. It really requires long-term medical management and surveillance. It's a really multidisciplinary treatment that is best for these types of patients. So if we were to review the traditional treatment approaches for nasal polyps, nasal saline irrigations, really at the top of the list, followed by topical intranasal steroids, this usually involves long-term therapy. Antibiotics have also been involved in the treatment of nasal polyps, mainly when there's infectious exacerbations. And then leukotriene modifiers like Montelukast can also be helpful. And then short bursts of systemic steroids. A whole constellation of potential side effects with the use of oral steroids that really preclude their long-term use for nasal polyps. If patients fail a medical therapy, then we move on to surgery. And the goal of surgery is not just to remove the polyps and decrease the inflammatory load, but really to create as large of an opening as possible into the sinus cavities in order to optimize the distribution of topical steroid therapies, which is why I always say even to my patients that when we do surgery, it's really the first step in a very multi-step process in managing their disease. So post-surgical medical therapy is absolutely critical in order to maintaining adequate control of 
our patients with nasal polyps. Surgery is not necessarily a cure-all for a lot of our nasal polyp patients. In some of the older studies, the polyp recurrence rate were shown to be anywhere from 35 to 40% between six months and 18 months after surgery. In the last several years, there have been more innovative endoscopic approaches that have been developed, like the draft three approach, where you actually connect the sinuses on both sides. And that's actually been able to reduce polyp recurrence rate to less than 10% and has been somewhat of a paradigm shift, mainly because, again, it creates larger sinus openings, which enables more optimal distribution of our topical steroid therapies after surgery and prevents those polyps from coming back. Type 2 inflammation is also associated with more severe sinus disease and symptoms and recurrence after surgery, which is why these neuroendoscopic approaches like the draft 3 has been recommended for these patients with type 2 disease, especially those with comorbidities like asthma and aspirin sensitivity. So biologic treatment has been recently developed as an option for patients with severe inadequately controlled CRS with nasal polyps. In terms of determining who is a good candidate for biologic therapy, there was the euphoria consensus statement, which I was a part of. It was this expert panel that was multidisciplinary. We reviewed entire literature for all of the biologics at that time and then recommended essentially a stepwise algorithm in terms of who would be candidates for biologic therapy. So patient has to have bilateral nasal polyps on nasal endoscopy. If they had a history of surgery, then they would have to meet three of the five criteria listed here. And then if they had no history of surgery, then they would have to meet four of the below criteria. So that includes number one, evidence of type two inflammation, a need for systemic steroids, at least two or more courses in the past year, significant impairment and quality of life as determined by the SNOT-22, significant loss of smell, and then diagnosis of comorbid asthma. So if we look at the prevalence of type 2 inflammatory comorbidities in our nasal polyp patients, up to 65% have comorbid asthma, whereas the prevalence of asthma in the general U.S. population is only 8.5%. Our CRS with nasal polyp patients who have asthma are associated with more severe type 2 inflammation compared to those patients who have nasal polyps without any comorbid asthma, and about 26% of patients with nasal polyps have NSAID-exacerbated respiratory disease many of the steps in this pathway have become targets of our new biologic agents. So typically, there's some type of insult to the airway epithelium, whether it be allergens or pollutants, bacteria, biofilms. That then triggers, again, this type 2 inflammatory cascade where we have these various cytokines that are induced, like IL-33, TSLP, and then more downstream, IL-4, IL-5, IL-13, which then leads to activation of our eosinophils as well as IgE release. Each of these various agents have become ways of blocking different aspects of drivers of type 2 inflammation. So with corticosteroids, that's more of a nonspecific immunosuppression. But again, because of the toxicity, it really precludes long-term use. Then we have the host of biologics that block IL-5, like mepolizumab, resolizumab, and venralizumab, and then dupilumab, which blocks both IL-4 and IL-13 receptor, and then omalizumab, which blocks IgE. So these are the current type 2 biologic therapies that have been FDA approved for treatment of nasal polyps. Again, we have dupilumab. The target here is the IL-4, IL-13 receptor. 
In addition to being used for nasal polyp patients, it's also used for asthma patients, atopic dermatitis, as well as eosinophilic esophagitis. We also have omalizumab, which targets IgE. It's also used for patients with allergic asthma, as well as uh, ulticaria. Semipolizumab, which is an antibody against IL-5, has been approved for treatment of not only nasal polyps, but also eosinophilic asthma, eosinophilic granulomatosis, and hyper-eosinophilic syndrome. So if we take a look at the evidence for each of these various biologics, it's quite robust. Starting with dupilumab, we have the landmark Liberty trials. These were large phase three double-blinded randomized control trials, which looked at the efficacy of dupilumab versus placebo. And they're able to demonstrate that there was a significant reduction in nasal congestion and nasal polyp score in the treatment arm versus placebo. And that was sustained over the course of 52 weeks. If we take a look also at the impact of dupilumab on steroid use surgery, as well as asthma symptoms, you can see that the time to the first use of systemic steroid or nasal polyp surgery during the treatment period was significantly lower in the dupilumab arm. And then if we look again on the impact on asthma control, you can see that there was a significant improvement in FEV1 and ACQ6, again, in the treatment arm versus placebo. And then moving on to omalizumab, we have the polyp 1 and polyp 2 trials. You can see that there's a significant reduction in nasal polyp score from baseline that was much improved in the treatment arm versus placebo. Same results in the nasal congestion score. Again, you could see that there's significant improvement in the omalizumab arm versus placebo, where there's a larger proportion of patients that were able to achieve this greater than or equal to one point reduction in nasal polyp score versus the control arm. And then if we look at the synapse result for mepolizumab, again, significant improvement again in the treatment arm and nasal polyp scores is out to 52 weeks versus the placebo arm. And then if we look at the nasal obstruction visual analog scores, you can see there's significant improvement in the treatment arm. We also have this Cochrane review, which looked at multiple biologics as opposed to a single agent. This is a review of 10 studies that encompassed over 1,200 adult patients with CRS. Almost all of these patients had nasal polyps, were using nasal steroids. The biologics included dupilumab, anti-IL-13 agents, anti-IL-5 agents, as well as omalizumab. Dupilumab, after 24 weeks, showed significant improvement in quality of life and symptoms versus placebo, just like we saw in the Liberty trials. For mepolizumab, they concluded that the effects may be similar to dupilumab, but there were too few patients where they could ascertain that. And then with omalizumab, after 24 weeks, they found that there was significant improvement in quality of life in the treatment arm versus placebo and no increase in adverse events in the intervention group. I wanted to spend some time now focusing on the various guidelines that have been developed for treatment of nasal polyps, especially with the plethora of new treatment options that we have available, including the biologics. So we have the International Consensus Statement on Allergy and Rhinology, Rhinosinusitis 2021. We also have YACI's Global Atlas of Allergic Rhinitis and Chronic Rhinosinusitis. We also have the European Forum for Research and Education in Allergy and Airway Diseases. We also have the most recently developed United States multidisciplinary consensus statement on a stepwise treatment algorithm for management of chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps, of which I was the senior author.
The ICAR consensus on CRS with nasal polyps, this involved essentially a systematic review of all the available literature on these various treatment options. So based on the level of evidence for each of these treatment modalities, the recommended treatment for CRS with nasal polyps is topical intranasal steroids, short-term oral steroids, and aspirin desensitization for our AERD patients. There was a recommendation against antifungal therapy, intravenous antibiotics, topical antibiotics, and non-macrolide antibiotics, except in the event of acute exacerbations. Therapeutic options for our nasal polyp patients are saline sprays, rinses, or nebulizers, non-standard topical intranasal steroids, so that would include the off-label steroid irrigations, as well as the exhalational delivery system, macrolide antibiotics, anti-leukotrienes, and the steroid-eluting implant. The ICAR consensus for the role of biologics in nasal polyp patients, so dupilumab is recommended for patients with severe nasal polyps. Mepolizumab was considered an option for patients with nasal polyps and asthma. And then omalizumab, the consensus was that it's an option for patients with severe nasal polyps. And then most recently, we decided to develop a United States multidisciplinary consensus statement on the stepwise treatment algorithm for management of chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps. And the impetus behind this particular consensus statement was that when I had gone to Euphoria, that was really the first forum where a lot of us as rhinologists were able to sit down with our allergy immunology colleagues and pulmonologists from Europe and really hammer out a treatment algorithm and the role of biologics So because a lot of the treatment options that we have in the U.S. are not available in Europe, as well as access to surgery, that was why we decided to develop a different consensus statement that essentially encompassed all treatment options for nasal polyps and not just focus on the biologics alone, which was our main priority for the euphoria consensus statement. So the first step in any patient with nasal polyps in terms of treatment is to give intranasal steroid sprays with or without a short burst of oral steroids if it's not contraindicated. And then you can reassess the symptom response and objective evidence to disease of at least four weeks of therapy. If they continue to have persistent symptoms, then you can consider the exhalational delivery system for intranasal steroids or repeating a short burst of oral steroids if there's no contraindication. Now, if they fail that initial trial, then we move on to the next step in the treatment algorithm for refractory nasal polyp disease where we escalate the treatment. The majority of patients, if they don't respond to medical therapy, then typically we proceed with sinus surgery. Now, if the patient's symptoms persist or recur despite appropriate sinus surgery and postoperative medical management, there's a whole spectrum of options that you can proceed with at this point. You can try one of the more advanced approaches or the biologics, especially if the patients have comorbidities. And I think determining which treatment option really comes down again to a shared decision-making process between the physician, this multidisciplinary team, and the patient themselves. In the euphoria consensus statement that I was a part of, we essentially used the same five criteria for use of biologics to determine response assessment. So that would involve reduced nasal polyp size, reduced need for systemic steroids, improved quality of life, improved sense of smell, and then reduced impact of comorbidities like asthma. So after 16 weeks, we recommend reevaluating the treatment response. If the patient has no response, then the biologic should be discontinued and then reevaluating again after a year. So we defined no response as meaning zero criteria, poor response as meaning one to two of these five criteria, 
moderate response as meeting three to four criteria, and then excellent response if they meet all five criteria. One caveat to the use of biologics is that there are ethnic and geographic differences that may affect the response to biologics in our nasal polyp patients. There have been multiple studies that have shown that the TH cytokine levels, the eosinophilic, neutrophilic patterns, and Ig expression is extremely diverse in our CRS with nasal polyp patients across Europe, Asia, as well as Oceania. And patients with CRS from Asian regions, particularly China, have been shown to be less susceptible to biologics, mainly because there's not as much of a proportion of nasal polyp patients in Asian countries that have the type 2 endotype. So again, as we see our Asian patients, just keep in mind that they may not necessarily be as responsive to biologics, mainly because they may not actually have a type 2 inflammatory response characterizing their nasal polyp disease. There are still some unmet research needs with biologics in our nasal polyp patients. We need to be able to identify more consistent biomarkers that are readily available to identify response and monitor response to biologic therapy, look at any adverse effects. We also have to determine optimal treatment duration and discontinuation criteria, protocols from long-term treatment. So should we taper the use of the biologic over time? I think that's something that we'll need to assess in the future, as well as, of course, the health economics aspect of long-term biologic use. I think having a multidisciplinary collaboration is absolutely critical for treatment of nasal polyps. For me, it was really a revelation when I attended and was part of the Euphoria Experts board panel, just to be able to have this discussion with our pulmonology and allergy immunology colleagues as a rhinologist and endoscopic sinus surgeon. It was really helpful. I certainly have learned a lot on the immunology and allergy aspects, as well as in terms of trying to diagnose patients with comorbid asthma. And I think that really helps in education for our patients. So I think this integrated care pathway is absolutely critical. I think every patient with CRS should have at least one evaluation for asthma and allergy. It's important to evaluate both the upper and the lower airways and try to monitor the use of systemic steroids. So I think this interplay between primary care, allergists, immunologists, pulmonologists, and myself as the rhinologist is really crucial in determining the most optimal care for our nasal polyp patients. I think it's absolutely critical to engage the patient in the shared decision-making process because, you know, the patient preference really helps to direct the treatment options that they're going to pursue. So if you recall in that multidisciplinary consensus statement that we have, there was almost a fork in the road where there were five different treatment options for patients with refractory nasal polyps. So I think that as part of this shared decision-making process, it's really important to present all of the spectrum of therapeutic options that we have available discuss each therapeutic modality, the risks and benefits, evaluate each of those with the patient, taking into account their preferences, and then proceed with implementation of that treatment algorithm. CRS with nasal polyps is associated with substantial discomfort and negative impact on quality of life. It can be refractory to traditional medical and surgical treatment in Western countries, characterized by predominantly a type 2 inflammatory response with asthma as a common comorbidity. So the type 2 directed biologics have been FDA approved for nasal polyps include dupilumab, omalizumab, and mepolizumab. They've been shown to reduce nasal polyp size and improve quality of life. 
as well as reduce burden of disease. And when considering whether or not a patient is a candidate for biologics, it's important to have multidisciplinary involvement, as well as the preferences of the patient taken into account, in addition to the severity of their disease and adequate control with other treatment approaches and presence of comorbidities. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash ZFR 860. This activity is supported by an independent medical education grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated and Sanofi.